Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you are joining us. We believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This season, we are going through the book of Romans, and today's episode is Romans chapter 7, The New Way of the Spirit. <clears throat> well, I'm just going to warn you to bear with me today because ragweed is in full bloom and my head is crazy. So you might hear sniffing or I might lose my concentration because my head is pounding, but um just pray for me through this because this was a tough chapter. And I feel like I'm saying that every week. <laughs> but you know what? The good news is right before I logged on, I went ahead and read chapter eight. And oh my goodness, there's nugget after nugget after nugget of goodness in chapter eight. So that's going to be exciting. It's not going to be near as difficult as these chapters have been. So the first thing that I want to mention before we get started is if we don't get this, and what this is, is this death to old man in this new way in the spirit, we will fall under one of two things. One, Paul talks about this in the last chapter, in chapter six, we will abuse grace and keep on sinning. And all that does is destroy us. Sin is a trap that will hold us back from the fullness of life that God created for us and the joy of our salvation. So we'll fall under that trap or trap number two, legalism. And Paul is addressing what that is doing to him at the end of this chapter. So we'll talk about that more and more. But one of two things, if we stay under this law, then it will we will abuse grace and keep on sinning or we will fall under legalism and absolutely destroy those around us and be exhausted doing it. So at the beginning of this chapter, Paul... Um, uses the analogy or the illustration of a marriage and relates that to this dying to one covenant and being married to another. What this chapter is not is a condemnation for those of you that have been divorced. Um, divorce, marriage, and what the Bible says about it, it's a very complicated, complex topic. I don't have time to go in that today, but if you are interested in learning more about really what truly the Bible says about divorce, there is a book called Divorce and the Church by David. Oh, he's got a long last name. You know what? I'll actually put a link um, in the notes to this or and also on our Facebook um, in the comments below this post, I will post a picture of the book, what I'm talking about. Um, but what this is, it's just a good analogy um, from a common day practice. So I'm going to open up by reading the word um, through verse six. So the subtitles and illustration from marriage. Since I am speaking to those who understand law, brothers, you are unaware that the law has authority over someone as long as he lives. Let me redo that. 
Are you unaware? It was a question. Are you unaware that the law has authority over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she gives herself to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then, if she gives herself to another man, she is not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah, so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. Clear as mud, is it? <laughs> so let's break this down. So in this analogy, we have the law. And he is not talking to just people who would understand the law, which is the law of Moses, just any law. Society has laws, and laws is a standard of conduct which man is expected to live up to. There are unspoken standards. You know, just the analogy of whenever somebody says, well, that's not fair. They have a set of laws that they are living by and believing that, that man is not measuring up to them. Um, the purpose of the law is to condemn it points out wrongdoing and punishes. So the law in this analogy is the law. The woman, the woman in this analogy is all of us. It is the believers that he is talking to. Husband number one is Adam. It's the old man. And in this, we need to know that the law binds the man and woman together. And that means we share in the lifestyles. And the lifestyles of Adam and his sin nature was bondage and shame and death. But if Adam dies, then the law has to be silent and allow us to remarry. Well, what is crazy is Jesus became Adam. Adam is a dom man. Jesus became Adam and died on the cross so that we could be free from that marriage covenant. And now we get to marry husband number two, which is the risen Jesus. And like the law with Adam, this new law is, or this new marriage is going to bind us together and we share in the characteristics of that marriage, which is freedom and life and power. So I said earlier that the purpose of the law is to condemn and point out the wrong in our life and punish it. Its effect is to discourage people, which produces despair. So we as humans adjust to it and we compensate. And because of that, because of this despair, we end up creating a bigger problem. We want to be recognized because since we do break the law, we want to be recognized when we've kept it. And the law doesn't do that. The law doesn't just pop up and go, oh, good job. You did what you were supposed to do. And so we keep our own records of doing right. And it creates in us a very self-centeredness. We're proud of our record of all the things that we did right. We also become very critical of others. We point out their flaws so that nobody is looking at ours. 
And again, we want to feel like we are living above the law. We are doing everything right. And so if we point out the flaw in others, it makes us feel like we're doing good. We're patting ourselves on the back because the law doesn't do that. It also um, creates in us a reluctancy to admit our own fault. We want to present our lives as if we've got it under control. And that is a problem that the law creates. Um, now, in verses 5 and 6, before death, we attempted to follow the law. We were acting on the outside to be righteous and loving and giving. We see this in the Gospels where Jesus is constantly talking to the Pharisees. These were very religious people who took the law very seriously and every day were conscious about obeying it. I mean, they were the holy ones. And Jesus looks at them and says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. They were going through outward motion of being righteous, loving, and giving. That is who we were. We try to behave, but we just can't. And the law said that we were hypocrites. We were just actors because on the inside, we were selfless and loveless. That is what the law was good for outward emotions. And remember I said last week, I quoted from Jeremiah Johnson, that the gospel is not behavior modification. We can do good on the outside and appear to be following the laws for some time. But God is more concerned about our heart. The gospel is heart transformation. So now with our second husband, the risen Christ, we are kind because Christ is kind and he is in us. We are living by a new spirit. We are kind because we are tied to Jesus Christ through marriage and he is kind. And now we can fall and we're going to fall, but we won't be condemned like the law did. We can admit our failures and know that they're going to be forgotten. We can live with this assurity that God's not just going around being unhappy with us all the time. We are made right through Christ. I love this. This came from Ray Steadman's. A lot of what I'm opening with came from Ray Steadman's devotional on the book of Romans. I think he did a really good job of putting this in practical words. And this was a direct quote from him. He said, the law never straightened us out. Love did. It was Jesus on the cross and his spirit coming inside of us that straightened us out. We are free to fail and still be loved. I want you to hear that this morning. Those of you that want to beat yourself up. In fact, one of my study partners said that she... Um, was with her father-in-law this weekend, and he's an older man and has served in the church faithfully, and he's having some health issues. And so she asked him in the service, hey, would you like to go up to the front for prayer? And he looked at her and he said, sometimes I hesitate because I know all the things that I've done and I just don't feel worthy. And that needs to end today through the blood of Christ. He is a, God is a good father and he sent his son, not for nothing. He, that was not an easy decision. I'm sure it grieved his heart so much to watch his son suffer, but he did it because he wants a relationship with you and he wants you to be free to fail and know that you are still loved with an everlasting love. So good news in the gospel. Let's 
see where we are. Oh, I wanted to read this from the Jewish New Testament commentary, and this was their, I thought it was good commentary on what we are talking about. It says, and I'm going to read it directly, it is not the Torah. The Torah is another word for the law, the five books of Moses. It is not the Torah that has been made dead, nor is a believer made dead in the sense of no longer responding to its truth. Rather, he has been made dead, not to all of the Torah, but to three aspects of it. So remember, when Christ died on the cross and we get baptized, that is a picture of our old man being buried and we are putting to death the law and we are being raised with Christ and we are walking as verse 6 says, in a new way of the spirit. So these are the three aspects that we are dying to. It's capacity to stir up sin in us. And we're going to talk about that in this chapter. The law has a capacity to stir up sin. It's not the law that's bad, but just we'll talk about that in depth in a little bit. Number two, it's capacity to produce irredeemable guilt feelings. Before Christ, there was guilt and there was shame, but Christ takes all of that onto the cross and he has a way for us to rid ourselves of the guilt and shame. We confess our sins to one another and we confess our sins to God and he's faithful to forgive us. And the, the people we've confessed our sin to, their job is to pray for us. We can let go of the guilt. And number three, we are dead to its penalties, punishments, and curses. The law never had the power to save us and now we are free from that curse of death, because through Jesus, we can be made alive. I just thought that was so good. That is the three things that we are dying to. Our uh, Paul begins to talk about the law arousing the passion of sin inside of us. I thought this was so interesting. Let's see. I am going to read verses 7 through 14 in just a second. But I do want to say that our new freedom allows us to serve God better in this new walk of the Spirit. We don't serve sin or legalism, but now we serve with the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We are now motivated by love and not fear. Let's go to verse 7. Verse 7 says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not known what it was to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. From apart, For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was made alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Again, what is Paul saying? Well, one, he starts off by asking the question, what should I say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. Paul is always protecting the law. Its purpose is to expose the heart and turn us back to God. And he ends this section with saying that the law is holy, just, and good. So 
he ends up going on and saying he would not know sin if it were not for the law. For example, he would not know what it was to covet, which is the 10th commandment. He Here, Paul is concerned that the readers may jump to the conclusion that the Torah is sinful since it can stir up sin. He explains that the Torah is holy, set apart, but it's our worldly nature that is at fault. He uses the 10th commandment as his example. And really, somebody pointed out in my study group, if you look, the 10th commandment is the root of all the sins before it. Um, committing adultery, committing murder, all of these things is because you have covetousness in your heart. This sin can be committed, the sin of covet covetedness, without an external act. In other words, it can be hidden deep in your heart and no one can know the difference. It occurs in the heart showing that the law cannot be construed as a set of behavioral rules to be followed. It exposes our condition. The law does. And we confess our sin and we need to be saved. Let's see. Oh, the Jewish New Testament commentary says Paul recognized sin's power and that we are sinful beyond measure and cannot control its urges on our own. Apart from the law, he knew Paul, we're talking about whenever he says apart from the law, and he uses that terminology twice in this section, he knew it by memorization, but he didn't yadah it. He didn't know it in his heart. He wasn't, it wasn't that aha moment. He just knew it by rote memorization. A couple of, um, I think it was sometime last week, Edie, my daughter, was doing her quiet time in the morning and going through. She reads one chapter a day and does a hair journal. And all of a sudden, she just got giddy. And I was like, what? What are you talking? What, what's exciting? And she said, I don't know how to explain it. And it was just kind of that yada moment. It, um, it was that moment where there was a rhema word. It came alive to her. Like it's something that she had read before and been familiar with. But all of a sudden, it clicked. The dots connected. And she was so excited. And again, she said, I can't even explain it. It's just, I know it now. And that is what happens through time with us. And so Paul is saying that there was a time that he didn't really, like he had it memorized, but he didn't really know it. And he grew up with like-minded, sheltered, good Jewish boys and girls who went to synagogue and that's all that they did was study the law. And he was a good little boy. But then he grew and started gaining freedom. And then he had the ability to do things that we're not allowed to do. Think of your teenage years. When you gain a little bit of freedom and all of a sudden this rebellion comes up, that is, I mean, that is what Paul is talking about all through this. We have this rebellion that's hidden away and there's times that we can awaken that. So he talks about his the covetousness in his heart. Sin can last silent for years. It's in there, but there's nothing that's going to come up and challenge it until all of a sudden you're faced with the law and it starts stirring. It's the sin inside of us is so powerful. In fact, it's more powerful than willpower and it will cause us to do things that we don't want to do. So a couple of examples of this, I think this was in the During Word commentary that really helped me understand, well, let's go back to the garden, the forbidden fruit. God said, oh, you can have all of the fruit of the land, but you cannot have the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what does the serpent do? Well, he tempts Eden. All of a sudden, this forbidden fruit sounds so enticing. And why was it forbidden? And 
There was something that rose up in her that just wanted it because she wasn't supposed to have it. <clears throat> Think about prohibition. They put up all these laws in the early formation of America that you couldn't have or buy or sell alcohol. I don't remember exactly what the rules were, but all of a sudden there was more alcohol consumption than ever before. Another good example in the Enduring Word was about this hotel in Florida, but it reminded me there was also one in Galveston that had the same problem. It's a hotel that's on the ocean and it's built on piers. And so the hotel puts up all these no fishing signs because they do not want people fishing from their balcony. And they had all of this problem with people fishing. Well, somebody suggested take down the signs. So you're not even giving people the idea to fish and all of a sudden the problem was solved. No more fishing. Well, I thought one of the most interesting examples of this was from St. Augustine. He's one of the early church fathers. And I love this. I'm going to read this. It's from the Enduring Word and I just thought it was too good not to read. In his book, Confessions, the great theologian of the ancient church, Augustine, described how this dynamic worked in his life as a young man. There was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit, and one stormy night, we rascally youth set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon them, but to throw them to the pigs, though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of the forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but they were not the pears that my wretched soul coveted, for I had plenty better at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was the feast of iniquity and that I enjoyed to the full. That was it. Let's see. What what was it that I loved in the theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law? The desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. This little nasty thing called sin in our life is so powerful. And again, Paul is trying to get his audience to die to the law that stirs that up and become alive in Christ. Now we have the Holy Spirit that through the law, the law still, we can read the law, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, we allow it to transform us and it has, it has power over sin. The law shows our guilt and it excited our rebellion, but the law now, now fully aware of my sinful state. Let's see. I'm sorry. Let me um let me catch what I was trying to say here. The law makes us aware of our sinful state, but the law cannot save us. The law's power can only release the innocent. It has no authority to release the convicted. We must die to sin and to the law is what Paul is saying. But the two are not in the same basket. The law isn't bad. It just can't justify us. It cannot transform our heart. I hope that made sense. So then Paul goes into verses 13 through 19, and he starts off asking another question. Therefore, did what, um, did what is good cause my death? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, pages are sticking together, in order to be recognized as sin was producing death in me through what is good so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. Okay, in this section, he's asking another question. 
And he's saying that the law was good and didn't cause my death, that sin did. Sin is so evil that it can even pervert something good like the law. How? Well, it builds our urge for rebellion or builds our self-righteousness. We've talked about this time and time again. Um, in the enduring word, we're reminded that we need sin to appear. It wants to hide, just like the, the covetness or in Augustine, his desire to become a thief. Those are things that had been hidden and dormant for a long time. And we need that to be exposed and come to the light so that we can cut it, its head off. Okay, so verse 15, I'm going to pick up there. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living within me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is within me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do the good, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. So we can we relate to this frustration that that we want to live a certain way. We want to live a life pleasing to God and we find ourselves doing things that we really wish that we wouldn't have done. Paul wants to do right, but the law doesn't give him the power to do it. It's a battle between two selves, the old and the new. The new self delights in the law of God. The old self is not the real Paul. And I thought this was interesting because the enemy is going to come and say that old self is the real you and you, the new self is just an actor, is a hypocrite. But that is not truth. That is a lie. And we have to speak truth to us. We have to speak truth so that we know, no, this new self is who I was created to be in Christ Jesus. His spirit is alive in me and awakening the real me. So Paul goes on and he says, that he calls himself wretched in verse 24. I'm going to um, read that. What a wretched man am I? Who will rescue me from this dying body? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what he is saying here, this word wretched means that you are wretched through exhaustion of hard labor. Paul is literally worn out from trying to please God and obey the law. He is overwhelmed and he's desperate for deliverance over sin's power. But there's good news, and Jesus shared that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. When we come to the end of ourselves and say, okay, God, I need to be rescued, that is when God pours out his blessing. And Paul asked, who will deliver me? And he referred to himself in this section of scripture, well, since verse 13, 40 times. The law apart from Christ, leaves us self-obsessed and unsuccessful. But now he finally looks outside of himself and he looks to the Lord Jesus. He puts Jesus in the right place as master. And he starts turning to facts through faith and stood instead of the lies. He puts Jesus or he, he realizes that Jesus now bridges the gap between him and God. And two, Jesus now works through him to transform him. That is the power to obey God's standard. The law taught us that we were sinners, but Jesus saved us from the curse. The law diagnosed us as doctors. It exposed areas in our life that was sick. 
but it's only Jesus that is the cure. So we have to have Jesus. It's like a doctor telling you have cancer, but you not going and taking the medication to get better or choosing to have the surgery. Jesus is the remedy. Okay, well, that sums up this chapter. I hope I did an okay job explaining some of these things. I do want to say chapter eight is filled with good news. You are going to be, if you were raised in church, there's going to be a lot of familiar scriptures that you're like, oh, this is all coming from chapter eight, all this goodness in chapter eight. Um, my subtitles are the life-giving spirit, the Holy Spirit's ministries from groans, which is negative, to glory, the believer's triumph. So these are all things how Jesus through his spirit overcomes sin and how we live in victory. So it's going to be very uplifting, very exciting. I thank you for sticking through this. I'm very, um, let's see. I mean, I just, I, I don't know the words I'm trying to use, but I just know that even though this is, is difficult and we're having a hard time fully understanding this, that through our perseverance, God is shaping us and giving us so much of his spirit and his ways. And in the right time, the dots are going to be connected and we are going to get it. And especially when we need to share the gospel with other people, it's just going to flow out of us because we put it inside of us. So stay encouraged, really be encouraged through chapter eight. I'll see you next week. Happy reading.